it's really, really fun and exciting for me to uh, have two weeks in a row sharing the Word of God with you. So um, if you weren't here last week, uh, we were, uh, I was preaching last week, and so I got, I got two weeks in a row, which is really fun. Um, we have, for about the last four or five weeks, we've been in a series entitled Revive, and uh, we've been talking about um, revival by looking at some of the Old Testament kings. And um, there's been one scripture which has threaded together all of these, all of these themes, and it's Chronicles, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, which reads, And if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. And so right within that, that passage there, we have four main components that are essential to revival. Okay, And so we've talked about humility by looking at the uh, example of King Josiah. We've talked about seeking the Lord's face by looking at King Asa. Last week, I shared with you about the importance of prayer in our life, that if we are to, to have a life that is full, and that is full of the Lord, then prayer is essential to our walk with the Lord, in fact, essential to our identity. And we did that by looking at King Jehoshaphat. So finally, this week, this is the last um, uh, sermon of this series, and I, I've been praying all week about this, that the Lord would do something significant this morning, that he would work in our hearts, that he would break through barriers, break through some strongholds that are in our lives, um, and so I've, I've been really just standing and waiting in expectancy for what the Lord might do this morning. I've especially been praying that he would break through this kind of New England hardness that we can have, right? And, you know, I'm old England, which is even, <laughs> even more, <laughs> even more uh, stiff upper lip, okay? So um, I, I get it. I get it, right? There's this, we have these natural walls in us that don't want to open up and share what's, uh, what's going on in our lives. But it, it's essential that we do that if, um, if the Lord's going to work something new in our lives. Um, so, yeah, today we're looking at the last part of revival, all right, which is turn from their wicked ways, turn from our wicked ways, okay? And really, that's synonymous with repentance, okay? Turning from your wicked ways is really the essence of um, repentance. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, King Hezekiah today as an example of how turning from your wicked ways leads to revival. And of course, the, true, the re reverse can be true as well. Revival can lead to turning from your wicked ways. Um, so let's turn. We're going to go to Second Chronicles um, chapter 30. And it's going to be verses 1 through 9. So that's 2 Chronicles, chapter 30, verses 1 through 9. And you'll be glad to, to know that um, there's no Sean Connery's voice in this one. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry, right? I, for those of you who weren't here last week, I, I kept saying whenever I heard Jehoshaphat's name, I heard the voice of Sean Connery pronouncing it. Um, <laughs> Jehoshaphat. <laughs> but Hezekiah didn't, Hezekiah didn't quite have the same name, so... So here we go, chapter 30. 
Now Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh. And they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month, since they could not celebrate it at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient numbers, nor had the people been gathered to Jerusalem. Thus the thing was right in the sight of the king and all the assembly. So they established a decree to circulate a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, that they should come to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. For they had not celebrated it in great numbers as it was prescribed. The couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the hand of the king and his princes, even according to the command of the king, saying, O sons of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to those of you who escaped and are left from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a horror as you see. Now do not stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever and serve the Lord your God that his burning anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and will return to this land. Now listen here. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. That last verse, verse 9, is, very, is really the core of this message uh, and is an essential verse that we will be returning to, but I want you to keep that on the back burner. As we, uh, as we jump in here. So, much last, like last week, I want to first establish some context for you. Context, context, context. So important when you are studying Scripture. Okay, the, the, the Scripture, the Bible, was not written in a vacuum. Okay, there's a grand narrative going on, and it's very important to know the passage you're reading, how it fits in to the bigger scheme of things. So, we've skipped ahead about 140 years from last week. Okay, last week we were looking at Jehoshaphat, and I said he, he was probably, we're talking probably around 872, 873 when he came to the throne, okay, B.C. Now we're in kind of 729, 728 when Hezekiah comes to the throne. And if you remember, the reason I'm throwing these dates out at you is not to sound like a history book, but it's actually to remind you that this is a history book. This has reliable history in it that is true, that happened. Um, in fact, we're, we're talking about Hezekiah today, and there's actually, there's recently been some really cool archaeological finds uh, that just uh, further support uh, the story of Hezekiah. Some, just some really cool stuff that, you know, just um, makes you realize, wow, you know, this really did happen. This really is true. Um, so I just want to put us in the context there. We're in the 700s BC. And much has happened since the time of Jehoshaphat. Um, we talked last week about how uh, the kingdom of Israel had split into two after King Solomon. It had split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Right? Northern kingdom known as the kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom known as the kingdom of Judah. And they had split. And if you remember, the northern kingdom had no good king. Didn't have one good king throughout this period of the kings. And Judah, Judah had a mix, some good kings and some not so good kings. But basically what's happened since the time of Jehoshaphat is 
that the northern kingdom, Israel, has been conquered by Assyria. And have been, they've been cast out into exile. The way Assyrians did things, the Assyrian Empire, is they would, when they conquered a place, they would literally transport all the people out and relocate them and then populate uh, what the conquered territory with whoever they wanted to fit in there. Uh, it's pretty brutal. So the northern kingdom has fallen. That happened in 722 BC, so not long after Hezekiah came to the throne. And at this stage, before Hezekiah comes to the throne, Judah, the supposed somewhat good kingdom, is also now really sunk to a new low in terms of debauchery and moving away from the Lord. And this is largely thanks to Hezekiah's father, Ahaz. So Ahaz has um, basically just um, really brought Judah to a, a new low place. Um, he's, he's led them astray in worshiping idols and false gods. Okay, he's, he's brought them to the, the Canaanite gods, Molech, uh, Baal, um, these fertility goddesses. They're doing divination. They're doing uh, witchcraft. Uh, they're doing child sacrifice. Ahaz sacrificed some of his children in the fire to, uh, to Molech. And so it's a new low for Judah. Um, 2 Chronicles 28, 19 says, uh, For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, for he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. That phrase, lack of restraint, very significant, lack of restraint. It means all the, all the restraints have been pulled off and anything goes in society. So Judah's doing evil in the eyes of the Lord now. But when Hezekiah comes to the throne, he brings revival with him. And there's a lesson to be learned here, I think, because, you know, often it's easy to blame whatever's going on in our lives or who we are on the way we were brought up or our circumstances. But with Hezekiah, he had a father who was evil through and through. And yet Hezekiah did, was not cut from the same cloth. He came in and brought sweeping reforms in. Okay, so... Under Ahaz's rule, he'd close the temple. He closed the temple to the Lord. Under Hezekiah, he reopens the temple doors, reestablishes the Levites and the priests, cleanses the temple. The priests consecrate and purify themselves, and they're celebrating the Passover again. You know, the celebration of the Passover was key to the Jewish identity, a remembrance of what the Lord had done for them. And so this all comes in under Hezekiah's reign, and this is, that's where that passage is. Hezekiah is inviting... Um, the rep people who are left from the northern kingdom, because there's a few scattered people left that the Assyrians have left, and he's inviting them, come worship with us, come back to the one true God. So essentially, he's, he's uniting the kingdoms again in a sense. So what are the fruits of Hezekiah's reign? He re reigned for about 29 years, and he brought revival with him. And so some of the things are, he got an extension of life. Um, Hezekiah's story is told in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and also in Isaiah. Isaiah was uh, one of the prophets around at the time of Hezekiah's uh, life, and in fact, he was prophet to Hezekiah. There came a point where Hezekiah was, the Lord said, hey, get your affairs in order, you're going to die. And Hezekiah cried out to the Lord, and the Lord gave him 15 more years. The Lord rescues Judah from being besieged by the Assyrians. The Assyrians have decided they're going to go after Judah as well, and the Lord saves them. 
there was peace during Hezekiah's reign. And as we've mentioned, there was revival during Hezekiah's time because Judah turned from her wicked ways and embraced the ways of the Lord. And so I want to bring you back to that verse again, verse 9 out of 2 Chronicles 30. It says, For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Let that sink in for a second. If you're here this morning and you feel like you've turned away from the Lord, he will not turn his face from you if you return to him. So there's a little context for us. And what I want to do now is let's get forward about some 2,000 plus years. Let's skip from 729 B.C. to February 5th, Super Bowl Sunday, 2017. 2017. Has much changed? Has much changed since, since the time of Hezekiah, since those Old Testament kings? In Old Testament times, people were constantly turning away from God, being seduced by the idols of their day. They were worshipping other gods. Are we any different? Is this nation or the nations of the world, are they really any different? You know, it's funny, as I was reading through the successions of kings, and I thought, you know, doesn't, doesn't this country, don't all countries have their own succession of kings? We just call them presidents here in the United States. But as I was reading through the, the list of good kings and bad kings, I was wondering, um, you know, can we look back at the list of, say, presidents and see who were the good and the bad kings in the eyes of the Lord? How will President Obama be viewed? How will President Trump be viewed in years to come in the eyes of the Lord? Will they have been seen as good kings or bad kings in the eyes of the Lord? I know probably some have already made their mind up, right? <laughs> what about the people in the nation? What about the people in this nation? What about us? Is society getting better? You know, do you feel right now, hey, you know what? We are, we're on a good path here. Things are going really well. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're kind of chuckling because nothing could be further from the truth, could it? I don't know about you, but um, I find myself getting incredibly irritated the moment I go on Facebook, <laughs> right? Yeah, and, and I find myself, what am I, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? It guarantees bad mood, instant bad mood, <laughs> right? Because you just, you're going to see somebody's opinion on something, and it's going to tick you off, and you start writing a reply, and then you delete it all, and, you know, and it's, the interesting thing about Facebook or uh, Snapchat, or whatever you do, right, social media, is we get instant access to people's opinions and thoughts about things. <laughs> and people say on social media things they wouldn't say to your face, right, because you, you're behind the comfort of your, your computer screen or your smartphone, right? You don't have to, 
face that person and say, well, here's what I think. Here's why I think you're wrong. You know, and that couldn't be kinder, right? There's a sense that there's more division than ever, certainly in this country, and I would say around the world. So what does that say about us as people? Are we growing in holiness and reverence to the Lord? You know, a term that's always, I have to admit, gives me a little bit of a chuckle, and I apologize if this is going to offend you. But when somebody describes themselves as a progressive, I just, it makes me chuckle a bit because I, my first question that pops into my head is like, so what are you progressing towards? Not that it's bad if you're a progressive. I, I am not against progressives at all. But the phrase itself, progressive, makes, just makes you wonder what's going on. Because what are we progressing towards? And often people who, who describe themselves as progressives might say, um, well, we're progressing towards a, a more humane society, progressing towards peace, to um, more tolerance, more acceptance, more diversity, more social justice. Okay, all those things are good. All those things are good. There can be one danger with that if it is not, um, uh, if it is not mixed with humility of the Lord. And the danger is that um, we can presume that humani- as humanity we can be our own liberators, right? That we can be our own saviors, our own masters, that we can bring our salvation. And, you know, of course, that's what exactly what um, human secularism espouses. It says we are the answer. We can um, save ourselves. Um, and of course, as Battlestar Galactica would say, all this has happened before. The zenith of the Enlightenment was probably the late 1800s, you know, right before the 19th, uh, 19th century, uh, sorry, 20th century hit. And at that point, humankind was kind of at this pinnacle, right? There was all these scientific discoveries going on. We were getting a grip on disease. Um, the arts were flowing. Incredible music came out of that period, incredible artwork, incredible literature, philosophy was was flourishing, and humankind was basking in their own ingenuity. How marvelous we are, how wonderful we are, and we're working towards this kind of utopia. And then what happened? World War I came along and pulled the rug from under those assumptions. It was a hard slap in the face that brought back to reality the fact that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot. It's one of the biggest myths and one of the biggest deceptions we can fall under is that humanity can save itself. If that was the case, there would be no need for Jesus. There'd be no need for the cross. We wouldn't have, God wouldn't have had to do that if there was another option. So we have to be careful because that can be another form of idolatry. Along with that secular humanism can come comes the growth of secularism, the pushing out of God in society. And of course, we feel that happening all around us, I think. Um, Secularism is on the up, both here in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, Europe has been described as a post-Christian continent. There's an attitude of we've been there and done that, and we're smarter than that. And I speak as one of them. I speak as one coming from a country, the UK, which is more and more secular by the day. And yet, if you're American or European, you have to remember that we're not separate. 
sins are forgiven. God will work elsewhere if we turn away from him, and he is. There's some amazing things going on in China, in Africa, in the Middle East. You know, because God, God works with whoever's hungry for him. He works with whoever's hungry for him. Are we hungry for him this morning? I think part we must be in a way, right? Otherwise, why would you be sitting here? Okay, other than maybe you're trying to pray for the past. Um, <laughs> I'm going to church today, and I'm going to pray for him now. It's going to be... Big one, please, Lord. The past when I promise I won't do this again. At least for a week. So secularism is on the up. All right, in, I would say, Western culture, all right? And it's really easy to forget there's so much else going on around the world. Let's not be so insular, all right? If if you're feeling discouraged about religion and what's going on in this country, look further afield, and I promise you, you will be encouraged. Because the Lord's always working. He's always moving. He's always wheeling and dealing, doing things that we don't even know about. Now, what's fueling this secularism? Well, there's many things fueling it, but one of the things that is fueling it quite well is this philosophy known as postmodernism. Postmodernism. Probably many of you have heard this term. And uh, whether you know what postmodernism is or not, it pervades our society, our thoughts, and how we view things. And it's notoriously difficult to define, but there are a couple of... um, uh, defining features of postmodernism. And you'll recognize them as soon as I, as I tell them to you. So the first one is postmodernism resists uh, the concept of absolute truth. So postmodernism says there's no such thing as absolute truth, which is kind of ironic because that's declaring an absolute truth. But I digress. It embraces what's called relativism. Everything's relative. So you believe this, that's fine. You believe that, that's okay. You believe that, that's okay. And who's to say which one is really true, okay? And as long as nobody hurts each other's feelings and nobody gets offended, that's okay. Let's have this plethora of, of, uh, of views on things. The ironic thing is that the roosters are coming home to roost with postmodernism because the natural outworking of this is the emergence of terms that we've suddenly started hearing like fake news, alternative facts. Well, of course they can exist if you deny that absolute truth exists. Why is what they're saying? Why couldn't that be true? Okay? So there's this resistance to defining an absolute truth. Okay? And of course, it's one of the reasons I think our society is in a mess today is because we're crying out for some kind of anchor of truth, right? Do you, do you get the feeling these days that you, just, you don't know where to look for anything reliable? If you want to get a reliable source of news, you can't seem to find it because all you see now is opinions and, well, they're obviously rooting for this guy, they're obviously rooting for this party, and there's this, we're, we're feeling very unsettled right now because truth has been plucked out of the public realm. And this is why our faith and our belief in Jesus and our trust in this as the eternal word of God has never been more important 
there's one source of truth, and you're looking right at it here, and we're worshipping the one true source of truth, of knowledge. And so whenever I open this book and I read the truth in it, to me, it's like a, um, I feel grounded again. This is a lens through which you can view the world. Okay? It may have been written thousands of years ago, but it is every bit as relevant today as it was when it was penned. So absolute truth, that's one thing postmodernism doesn't like. And then the other thing is postmodernism has a suspicion of what are called meta-narratives. Meta-narratives are grand stories, overarching stories. Okay? And what postmodernism likes to do is it, it, it tries to, it sees any grand story as some kind of power play. Okay? So when you hear people say all religion is, is something to control people, to exert power over them, they're a victim of postmodernism. Not to say that, of course, religion has been used to exert power and do awful things, but that's not God. That's human beings. That's people and what we do and how we pervert religion. So, of course, you know, both these things, absolute deny, denying of absolute truth and the denying or the suspicion of an overarching narrative, they're both antithetical to the Bible and to the gospel. Because what you've got here, this is from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, is an overarching history of God's redemption for his people. This, this, is, this is your guidebook to God's plan of redemption for all of us. Okay? And you've got to read the whole thing. All right? If you've never got around to reading from chapter 1 to right through the end of this book, I really encourage you to do that at some point. Because reading it as a whole, rather than as certain passages, will give you a far different experience and understanding of who God is and his plan for us. So secularism is one of the idols, I think, in our culture today. And we worship false gods through that, just as they did in the times of uh, Hezekiah and Ahab. What I'm trying to do here is draw some parallels between then and now. Okay? What's another one? Well, today, sexual immorality is rampant in our society. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry. Billions and billions of dollars are made in that industry. Marriage, sexual identity, and gender are being redefined before our very eyes. And of course, that's another natural outworking of postmodernism. If there's no truth, who's to say what marriage is? Who's to say what male and female is? Sex, out, sex outside of marriage is the norm now. Most people, a recent survey said that most people agree it's better to live together and cohabitate before you get married. But, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, uh, sexual sin and depravity has always been with us. It's as old as the human race. Um, In Hezekiah's day, it was just as bad. Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser uh, wrote this. And he studied uh, the Canaanite um, forms of worship quite quite, uh, in depth. He says, the unbridled licentiousness that accompanied much of the Canaanite worship of Baal and his conquest consorts is well documented from the oldest discovered alphabetic script in the world to the Ugaritic documents found at modern Rashomon in Syria. I can testify that modern pornography seldom exceeds the debauchery 
to look to these gods and goddesses and their devotions gave them satisfaction. So things were, you know, uh, just as bad, perhaps worse, even back then. The entertainment industry is becoming more and more sexualized and violent in an attempt to satiate our need for more thrills, more shocks. And this misguided attempt to be cutting edge. We glorify the famous celebrities, sports people. The scriptures talk about child sacrifice. Now Ahaz and many others gave their children of their babies to the fires of Molech. In our society today, we have pedophilia, child slavery, child soldiers, people like um, ISIS training young children to, to be killers, execute people, brainwashing them. And of course, since Roe versus Wade in 1973, there's an estimated been over 50 million abortions in this country alone. I was praying to the Lord about that issue. I was really torn about it because I realized that as I bring that up, there may be any number of you in this room that have gone through the pain of an abortion. And I want you to know that the Lord loves you. Lord, he forgives you. You come before him. He will not turn his face from you. Perhaps I can make this a little bit more up close and personal and share a, a, a story of my own with you. Before I came to the U.S., um, I was a touring musician. I wasn't walking in the ways of the Lord. I have led far from a picture-perfect life. In fact, in many ways, I've led a very sinful life for a lot of my life. I was a touring uh, musician on tour all over Europe and was doing everything that a lot of touring musicians do. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, the whole shebang. It's not a period of my life I'm proud of, but I was there, and one of the things I was, I was very promiscuous. And over the period of one tour, I got a call from one of my many girlfriends at the time. And she let me know that I think I'm pregnant. And I told her to get an abortion. Here I am in my early 20s. And I didn't want this to inconvenience my life. I didn't feel ready. And at that time, I didn't think there was anything wrong. And I said, you need to get an abortion. You need to get an abortion. You know, we, we, you know we're, we're, not even a, we're not even a couple. We can't do this. And this went on for about three months until finally it turned out that she wasn't pregnant. And I, of course, uh, let out this huge sigh of relief. But looking back, I think the damage was already done in the sense that at that time, had she been pregnant, I would have been okay with that. 
And that is something that I still carry with me, that I have given to the Lord. But I lay that out there and I, I share a little bit of my vulnerability there to let you know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And so I, I bring that up to, to let anybody who's, who's walking in guilt in that issue to let you know that you are loved, you are forgiven. And for all of us, there's no sin that any of you are carrying or that any of you have done or are still walking in that is too big for the Lord. There's not one. There's nothing you've done that cannot be forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing. So what do, what do we need to do? What we've done here is we've gone from the big picture, we've gone from Old Testament to the nations to the people. Let's get, and I, I shared that illustration as also a way to bring us in personally. Because ultimately we need to get up close and personal with sin. We can't expect the nations to repent if the church will not recognize its need to repent. We lead the way. If you want revival, it starts with us, with the people of God. But but it goes one step further because um, if the church, the church cannot recognize its need to repent if we as individual believers do not recognize our need to repent. It begins with you. It begins with me. It begins with all of us. You know, Jesus' most basic message was a call to repentance. After his temptation in the desert, and when he came into his ministry, uh, one of the first things that Matthew declares in the Gospel of Matthew 4.17 is, Jesus says, from that, uh, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke 5.32, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We're all sinners, folks. All of us, welcome to the club. If you woke up this morning, you're a sinner. And I just want to you know, emphasize here, a church that does not call you to repentance and does not point out the sin in your life is no church at all. If you want a church that makes you feel cozy and is going to tell you what you want to hear, and give you a nice little message of the week, and then you can get on with the rest of your week, that is not the church. That's not what the church should be about, and it's not what our church is about. So what is repentance? Well, essentially, repentance is a, is a turning around, okay? It's a, a, a change in your thinking, your perceptions, your dispositions. It's actually what the Greek word for repentance, meta noeo, means. Two words, meta and noeo. Meta meaning to turn around or change, and noeo kind of uh, knowledge, thought, those kind of things. It's a 180. If sin is this way, you need to go that way to God. And the thing is, the turning, there's two parts to the turning. There's a turning away from sin and a turning to or towards God. You've got to turn away from sin, turn towards God. And each and every one of us is desperately in need of repentance. Even right now, when we repent, we, we allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through us cleanse us and to renew us and to bring revival. There can be no revival without repentance. Do you want to see revival in your life? Do you? How badly do you want it?
I began with saying I had big um, just hopes and um, desires for this morning in terms of people's hearts being open, praying that the Lord would, would, would till the soil of our hearts. He would soften whatever's going on. I want to invite the worship team back up because I want us to go into uh, a time of repentance. Look inwards at yourself for a moment. Ask the Lord to highlight something in your life. I stand before you as a sinful man. Throughout my life, I have struggled with, with lust, pornography. At times, I've struggled with alcohol. I have struggled with promiscuity. All of these things, I've struggled with anger, with rage. All of these things. And I stand here to let you know that I'm far from perfect. But the Lord's worked something in my life that has freed me. That allows me day by day to give these things to him. And you can do it too. The Lord said to, uh, to Cain in Genesis 4, Sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is to have you. But you must master it. Sin wants to eat you up. It wants to destroy your lives. Destroy everything about you. And the key is repentance. He looks at the Lord and says, Lord, this ain't right. I don't know where to begin, but I know you do, Lord. So maybe for you, maybe it's an issue of rage or anger. Maybe it's an issue of gossip. Maybe it's an, uh, an issue of some kind of sexual immorality. Perhaps you're struggling with alcohol or you're struggling with drugs. You're struggling with, it could be some, any of those or something else completely. The Lord already knows what it is. So as we, as we, as we come to our knees, um, I just want to remind us that we also we have a greater responsibility in these times than Ahaz and Hezekiah did. See, the ground rules have not changed as far as God's concerned about how we come to him. Why do we have more responsibility? Because Jesus. They didn't know about Jesus back then. They didn't know as much about God's plan of salvation as we do today. And so we've been exposed to amazing grace. And to paraphrase one statement, with much grace comes much responsibility. We're people of grace. Not because of what we've done, but because of what the Lord has done in our lives. And so as we worship, I just, I just want to open up the floors. I encourage you, come before the Lord. Kneel, bow, pray. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Repent. Have somebody pray with you. This is a safe place.